Welcome or welcome back to Criminal Curiosity, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Jade, and I hope you're having a great day. If not, I hope it gets better. Thank you all so much for listening. So last week, we talked about the serial killer doctor, Thomas Neal Cream, and this week we will be talking about the murder of Arliss Perry. So let's get started. Arliss Perry was born Arliss Dikama on February 22, 1955, in Linton, North Dakota. She was the youngest of three children to her parents, Marvin and Jean. They were both Christians and they wanted their children to be closely connected to the Presbyterian Church. In 1963, the family moved to Bismarck, North Dakota, which is the capital of North Dakota. Her parents ran an automotive company and founded a church called the Bismarck Community Church. Arliss was described as being trusting, cheerful, and optimistic. She wanted to see the best in people and wanted to think positive things all the time. She taught Sunday school and worked for a Christian youth organization that spread the word about Jesus. Arliss's father, Marvin, said that Arliss lived a very sheltered life. She never left Bismarck ever. She attended Bismarck High School, where she met Bruce Perry, and they became high school sweethearts. Bruce Perry was the second of four children. His mother was a stay-at-home mother, and his father was a dentist. Both Arliss and Bruce were born in the same little town. Arliss was a conservative cheerleader who was the kindest person, and Bruce was a track and field athlete, setting multiple records for his school. He was also very smart and planned to attend Stanford University. In 1973, they graduated high school. Bruce went to Stanford University, which is about a 25-hour drive. He was enrolled as a pre-med student majoring in human biology. Arliss stayed in Bismarck, where she attended Bismarck Junior College. They decided that they would still be together, but do long distance. This is 1974. It's not like today where you can just send a text message or FaceTime. They use letters. Bruce did have some adjusting to do because all he ever knew was the conservative little town that he grew up in. And moving to a different state with different views and different people was something new to him. Arliss got a job at the dentist's office that Bruce's father owned. She was still busy with her church and doing missionaries, such as preaching about Jesus to people that didn't believe in him. In 1974, both Bruce and Arliss were 19 years old. Bruce went back to North Dakota and asked Arliss to marry him. On August 17, 1974, they got married at the Bismarck Community Church, and they had a honeymoon at a cabin that Arliss's parents owned. In September, they moved to Palo Alto, California, at Stanford University, which they stayed in the Kean Hall, located in the Escondido Village. Sorry if I pronounced any of that wrong. Which is a residence hall for married couples and partners that have children. 
Bruce was now a second-year pre-med student and had a job as well to provide for him and his wife. Arliss really loved the campus. She thought it was beautiful. She would go on walks and runs, and she would oftentimes go to the Stanford Memorial Church. Arliss loved writing letters to her friends and family back home in North Dakota. She would say in her letters that she felt really lonely, she felt isolated, and she didn't do a lot because Bruce was busy with school and work. She wrote about how it was a struggle for her to make friends. Arliss then got a job at a local law firm as a receptionist. Then her letters to her friends and family were different than they were before. She said that she really enjoyed living in California, the weather was nice, and she felt like everything was finally falling into place. On October 12th, the Stanford campus was quite busy. People were just hanging out and having a good time. Arliss had some letters that she wanted to mail off to her friends and family. Around 11.30 p.m., Bruce decided to join Arliss so that they could spend some time together and because he didn't really like the idea of her just walking around by herself at night. On the walk, they got into an argument about their car and it wasn't anything serious. It was a typical conversation or a typical argument that couples have. Arliss told Bruce that she wanted to go to the church and just cool off and have some time to herself, and Bruce headed back to the apartment. Stephen Crawford was a night watch security guard for the church, and he said that he saw Arliss enter the church at around 11.50 p.m. In the church, there were already two people there. They said that they saw Arliss enter the church, walk to the pew, and knelt down to pray. They said that she was still praying when they left. The church was supposed to close at midnight, but Stefan showed up at approximately 12.10 a.m. He looked in the church, didn't see anyone, and called out to anyone in the church that maybe he couldn't see and said, you know, it's closing time, I'm locking up, if you're here, you need to leave. But he didn't hear anyone, so he closed the church up. Between 12.15 and 12.30 a.m., Bruce began to worry, so he headed to the church. They only lived half a mile from the church, so it wasn't that far of a walk. Bruce arrives at the church and realizes that all the doors are locked. Bruce decided to walk around campus in hopes of finding Arliss. He walked everywhere and still there was no sign of her. He goes back to the apartment and waits for her, and at 3am he decides to call the police and tell them that his wife is missing. Bruce told police that maybe she fell asleep in the church and was locked in. So they went to the church and checked all the doors and they were locked. They called out asking if anyone is in there and no one answered. Police didn't think anything of it. They just thought that the couple got into an argument and just needed some time apart. At 5.45 a.m., Stephen Crawford, the nighttime security guard, went back to open up the church for the day and realized that one of the doors was unlocked 
and police would later say that the door was forced open from the inside. When Stephen Crawford goes into the church, he finds the body of Arliss Perry on the left side of the altar in front of the pews, which is where the two people that were already there in the church had seen her before they left. She was naked from the waist down, lying on her back. Her jeans were draped over the lower half of her body. There was an ice pick sticking out from the left side of her head behind her ear, and the handle of the ice pick was never recovered. There was a small bone broken in her neck. Her arms were crossed over her chest, and her legs were spread open. She was sexually assaulted with one of the altar candles that was 24 inches long and was still inside of her when she was found. Her blouse was ripped open and there was another altar candle pressed between her breasts with her arms crossed over it. The markings on her body showed that maybe she was beaten and strangled, even though there was no evidence of a struggle. Near her body, there was a kneeling pillow that had semen on it. There was a latent palm print found on one of the candles as well. Police go to Bruce and Arliss's apartment to tell him what happened and to question him. As you know, it's not the strangest thing to question the people closest to the victims. When police go and talk to Bruce, they see that he's covered in blood. Bruce told them that whenever he gets stressed out, he gets chronic nosebleeds, and this was very much a very stressful situation. But to everyone on the outside looking in, it of course looks suspicious. Police decided not to tell Bruce that his wife was murdered. They wanted him to come down to the station, and when he went, they questioned him for two hours. They created these scenarios, and they created a reaction out of him. Some scenarios would be, Arliss was cheating and he found out, or Arliss was pregnant and he wasn't happy about it. Bruce voluntarily gave his fingerprints for testing and took a polygraph test. And again, polygraph tests are not the most reliable thing. But in the 70s, it's as much as you're going to get. He passed the polygraph test and was no longer a suspect. And that's when they tell him that his wife had been murdered. The dean of Stanford Chapel moved the Sunday service to the front lawn instead of inside the church because they had to preserve the crime scene. The dean saw the crime scene before, and he believed that it was symbolic, like a satanic ritual, but nevertheless, the church must go on. Police wanted to question anyone that might have been there, if they had seen anything out of the ordinary. They questioned Bruce again, even though he wasn't a suspect, and he told them that all they did was go for a walk. Nothing seemed weird. No one was following them. Someone that was passing by the church said that they saw a man with sandy brown hair parted to the side and walked into the church around the same time Arliss went in. 
He was believed to be around 25 years old and have a medium stocky build. The FBI joined in on the murder investigation and created a profile of the killer. They said that her killer is probably a loner, military background, between the ages of 17 and 22, and the killer keeps possessions from the victims as trophies. Police determined that Arliss was murdered after midnight, but was sexually assaulted afterward. Stephen Crawford, the nighttime security guard, said that he went to lock up the church at 12.10 a.m. Arliss was most likely in the church with her killer. Someone came forward and said that between 12.15 and 12.30 a.m., when they passed by the church, they heard a weird sound coming from inside the church. But when they stopped, they didn't hear it for a while, so they just kept walking. Stephen Crawford said that he did a sweep of the church at 2 a.m., and police did a sweep of the outside of the church at around 3 a.m., when Bruce called them to report Arliss as missing. All the reports from the sweeps that they did reported that all the doors were locked. Crawford was considered a suspect because he didn't do what he was supposed to do, which was to protect the building. He took a polygraph test and passed it, and the latent palm print that was found on the scene didn't match, so he was no longer a suspect. There were some suspicions about the dean of the Stanford Chapel because he had access to the church as well, but he passed a polygraph test and there was no match to the palm print that was found as well. Police compared the handprint to over 100 suspects, but never found a match. At least seven people were in the church the same time Arliss was there. They were able to rule out the six people in the church, except for one. The man with the sandy blonde hair that was spotted around the church at around midnight, the night Arliss was murdered. On October 15th, there was a memorial service for Arliss at the same church that she was murdered at. A little unsettling, if you ask me. One of Arliss's co-workers that worked with her at the law firm was there, and when he saw Bruce, he didn't know that that was Bruce. He was thinking of someone completely different. Arliss was working at the law firm for two weeks, and she wanted to establish herself at her job to show that she was a good worker before she brought her personal life to her job. So Bruce never visited her at work, but there was another man that did. He was in his early 20s, sandy blonde hair, around 5'10", with an athletic build, and the co-workers just assumed, you know, since there is a man visiting her at work, this must be her husband, partner, boyfriend, whatever. The conversation between the man and Arliss lasted about 15 minutes, and when Arliss came back, she was upset. Police asked Bruce if he knew about a man visiting Arliss while she was at work and he said he had no idea who the person might have been. 
On October 18th, Arliss's body was taken back to Bismarck, North Dakota, where there was another memorial held for her at the same church that she and Bruce got married two months prior. When she was buried, two months later, her temporary grave marker was stolen, and it was the only one stolen. Once people learned about this, they started creating these rumors and theories, wondering if the killer was from Bismarck, and they followed her all the way to California to kill her, and since her body was back, they could steal the temporary grave marker. The police did release information to the public that two items on her body were taken, and the killer must have taken them as a trophy. Bruce's parents said that when Bruce and Arliss were doing long distance, he was in California and she was in North Dakota, Arliss and her friend went to Mandane, which is around a 10 to 15 minute drive from where she lived. Bruce's parents claimed that the two of them were trying to convert members of a satanic cult to Christianity as part of their work. The cult was called the Process Church of Final Judgment. They were into Scientology and Satanism, and they would carry out rituals. Another said that her pants were draped over her lower half, symbolizing Freemasons. And if you're like me that didn't know what a Freemason is, according to the history website, Freemasons are one of the oldest fraternities in the world, and Freemasons are a social and philanthropic organization meant to make its members lead more virtuous and socially oriented lives. Do what you want with that information, but I thought Freemasons was relating to the job field of carpenters and tile installers. Well, you learn something new every day. Police told the public that her legs were found straight, nothing to do with a pentagram and satanic rituals. In 1987, 13 years later, a book titled The Ultimate Evil, written by Murray Terry, opened the whole satanic pentagram thing up again. He was at the police's throat for dismissing the idea of Arliss and the Process Church of Final Judgment. He said that the man Arliss was arguing with at her work the day before she was murdered was a member of the cult who followed her, and said that Arliss started the argument with Bruce on purpose just so she could get some alone time. Mari Terry's book pretty much blew up. Everyone was invested in it. The bookstores that did sell the book were out constantly, and the library had a wait list due to the high demand for the book. Since the book was really popular, he sold out a thousand seat capacity venues where he would sit and talk about the theories of the case. And because there were so many people that wanted to see and listen to him talk, they had to get a different venue in order to fit everyone. In this book, a theory he talks about is about a man named David Berkowitz. You know him, I know him, he's also known as the Son of Sam. 
He was on a murder spree in New York City between 1976 and 1977. He murdered six people, wounded seven, and when he was arrested, he said that his neighbor's dog told him to commit those murders. And he's currently serving six consecutive life sentences. Four years after Arliss's murder in 1978, David Berkowitz sent a letter to Arliss's home in North Dakota. And in the letter, it said that the Process Church of Final Judgment hired a hitman to kill Arliss because she tried to convert them to Christianity. He told them that the cult was nationwide and they would kill people all across the country and he knew this because he said that he was a part of the cult. He claimed that Charles Manson, leader of the Manson family cult, and serial killer Otis Toole were a part of the cult as well. In 1979, David Berkowitz sent a book to a police officer in North Dakota, and in the book he wrote, quote, Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked, and slain followed to California, Stanford University, end quote. Two officers from California flew all the way to New York to question David about the murder. And about 30 minutes into the interview, he stopped talking and said that he didn't want the other prisoners to think that he was a snitch. Police figured that he was just saying all those things to stay relevant contributing absolutely nothing to the case. Arliss's murder was linked to two other women murders that were killed at Stanford University. People came forward saying they saw the same type of man around the area at the time of the murders, the sandy blonde hair man. But Arliss was murdered with a weapon while the two women were murdered due to strangulation with the killer's hands or their own clothes. The two women, their murders were taken place in low-risk areas of the killer being caught, but Arliss's murder was in a high-risk place. The church was in the middle of the campus where people are constantly walking by, people are constantly walking in, and there was a night guard that was doing sweeps of the church every hour, so it made it 10 times more higher risk. Police interviewed Ted Bundy, one of the most infamous murderers out there. He was often in California between 1973 and 1974 but he was ruled out as a suspect because he had an alibi that night that checked out the night Arliss was murdered. In June 2016, 42 years after Arliss's murder, a 65-year-old man named Brian McCracken came forward claiming that he was at Stanford Memorial Church the night of Arliss's murder. He claims that around midnight, he was walking past the church when he heard flute music coming from inside the church and decided to go and check it out. 
He goes into the church and sees a young white male wearing a light-colored Afro wig and playing the flute. Brian said that he recognized the man from Stanford's marching band. With the man in the church, there was a woman lying on the altar with candles around her, and she looked like Arliss. Brian didn't think right away that it was a murder. He just thought they were playing a game or something. But it turns out that what he saw happened the same night as Arliss's murder. In 2011, it popped into his head and he reported it to the police. Two detectives go to find the man playing the flute, just to question him, and in the interview, the man mentions the light-colored Afro wig, which confirmed Brian's story. But that was all that came from the interview, and detectives came out and said that he was not considered a person of interest. In 2016, with DNA testing much more advanced than it was 40 years ago, the police get their break. They located a DNA profile from a man that was found on Arliss's jeans the night she was murdered. Police decided to interview everyone that was around the area that night and took samples from each person. And with that, they were able to eliminate every single person except the night guard at the, at the church, Stephen Crawford, who is now 72 years old. Stephen Crawford was a veteran of the United States Air Force and started working at Stanford University in 1971 in the Department of Public Safety, where he was a police officer for a year before a new police chief decided to reorganize the department, where 75% of the police officers were offered jobs as security guards. Stefan hated that this was happening to him. He didn't like Stanford for it at all. In 1976, he left Stanford to work somewhere else. In 1992, his ex-wife reported him for forging a fake diploma with a blank certificate that he got from Stanford. He was charged and arrested for stealing over 300 valuable items from Stanford University which resulted in over thousands of dollars. On June 20th, 2018, detectives went to knock on Stephen Crawford's door at 9.05 a.m. Stephen called out to them and told him to give him a minute because he was getting dressed. A couple minutes later, police used the master key they got from the building manager and let themselves in. When they enter, they see Crawford sitting on the bed with a handgun and police backed off. They heard a gunshot, and when they entered, they found Crawford lying on the floor with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Bruce Perry is now a clinician and researcher in children's mental health. He is also the senior member of Childhood Institutes in Canada and Australia. He works with child trauma from high-profile incidents such as the Columbine High School Massacre, the Oklahoma City bombing, the Waco siege, and the YFZ Ranch custody cases. 
He focuses on the long-term effects of trauma and how things from childhood affects us as we get older. He is also an author and has published three books, one called, quote, What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing with Oprah Winfrey. It's a feeling that I can't describe when someone gets to live their whole life for Stephen Crawford or Stephen Crawford, however you say his name. It was 44 years that he got away with murder. And the minute they're caught, they end their life. In this case, it shows that polygraph tests are not reliable at all. But in the 70s, in that time period, it's the only thing that you can go off of. Stephen Crawford passed his polygraph test, and then the DNA said otherwise. Anyone can lie, but DNA and other physical evidence does not lie. Also, a murder in a church really supposed to be one of the safest places. And why did he randomly have an ice pick? I don't think that's part of something that security guards carry around, but we're not going to speculate. But that is the end of today's story. I would love to know what you guys think. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for next week's episode that comes out every Thursday. You can follow my Instagram at criminalcuriositypod where you can see the pictures of the case. This podcast is available on all podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. If you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review and rating because it helps me out so much and I would love to know what you guys think. Spotify now has ratings, so all you have to do is type in Criminal Curiosity and you will see a little star to leave a rating. It will be very helpful and much appreciated. You can also request any cases that you have through Instagram or Gmail that I will have in the description box. And please be safe out there. Look out for one another. Until next time, bye everyone.